electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thanks very much, Scott. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dominic Chu in for Kelly Evans this afternoon, and here's what's ahead of the show. The consumer has not cracked the labor market, and it hasn't slacked, and economists are increasingly sure a recession can be avoided. We have the latest on what that means for the Fed's rate cut timeline and for the markets overall. Plus, Amazon now part of the Dow. That is one more reason for our guest to like that stock. He sees another 30% upside from here. He makes his case and brings the three tech themes he's bullish on for the rest of the year. And three more names on deck to report, including one our trader says has been left for dead by the market, but it may have a life after all. That's today's earnings exchange. But we begin first with the markets, which have now drifted towards their session lows. As you can see behind me here, the Dow is just about flat on the session right now. Let's begin with the economy, though, and a big week of reports that could help cement where the markets and the Fed go from here. Steve Leisman has what to watch and what, if anything, can derail the growing consensus for a soft landing. Diana Olick has the latest read on the housing market and the one number that stood out to her in today's new home sales report. And joining us as well is Morgan Stanley's chief U.S. economist, Ellen Zentner. But first, Steve, we'll start with you and the rising optimism among economists that recession is unlikely. Yeah, Dom, forecasters at the National Association for Business Economics backing off their outlook for below potential growth this year, now seeing higher GDP, less inflation, and still low unemployment. Compared to the December forecast, the GDP forecast at 2.2 this year, that's up nine-tenths and down just a bit from the 2023 actual. Core PCE forecast at 2.2, down a tenth from the prior forecast, and unemployment at 3.9, down three-tenths. That's just a couple tenths higher than it is right now. It seems that the average forecaster has abandoned the prevailing idea, which has not really worked in the past several years, that the economy needs to run below potential with higher unemployment for inflation to fall. And if all that sounds like a soft landing, well, guess what? It is, according to these uh, respondents, 76% say the economy is headed for that soft landing compared to 16% who don't see it. The survey sees the Fed lowering the funds rate to 4.6 this year. That's in line with the Fed's own forecast and pretty much in line with where the market finally is now. And then down to 3.4 next year, a bit more aggressive than the Fed has dialed in. Uh, This year will be another test of the idea if U.S. inflation can fall without below potential growth. We'll get a challenge to that probably on Friday with the core PCE number coming out. The underlying story, though, could be productivity. And 41% of those naive forecasters say the big upside risk to the economy is strong productivity. The biggest downside concern? The Fed's staying too tight for too long, Dom. All right, Steve, stick around, please, sir. Let's now bring in Morgan Stanley's Ellen Zentner. Ellen, the Fed's preferred inflation gauge, that PCE, out this Thursday, how just important is it to the overall narrative for the Fed's timeline, whether it be too cut and if so, when? 
So look, it's extremely important. Now, do we have a good handle uh, on what we're expecting? Does the Fed have a good handle? Yes, because all of the indicators that go into the number that we're going to get on Thursday pointed to that reacceleration in the first quarter. Now, we've been expecting a reacceleration in core inflation this quarter, and that has underpinned our longstanding view that the Fed would hold off until June to cut rates. Um, but I think for many market participants, that came as a surprise. And on the back of all the January inflation data coming in, uh, we've seen a significant repricing uh, of that Fed expectation in markets. Um, but we do expect inflation reacceleration to be temporary. But that is an open question. In fact, folks are now leaning toward, will the Fed have to wait even longer beyond June in order to cut? And I type that back in to Steve's point about the NAB Outlook survey, where the downside risk was noted as the Fed remaining too tight for too long. And we're sort of on the precipice here of, do they do that? Or do they go ahead and feel comfortable to start easing policy uh, this year? Now, what's interesting here is I want to bring in something that J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon just spoke about in the past hour or so on the halftime report. He was sitting down with our Leslie Picker uh, at a trade conference down in, in Florida about just what the recession context he's putting around the story is right now. I'd like to bring that in. 70 or 80 percent chance we'll have a soft landing. I give it half that. We may very well have one, but I think it's just there was also a higher chance in the market things of rates being a little bit higher. The other thing I think it's always a mistake to do is look at just the year. All these factors we talk about, QT, fiscal spending, deficits, the geopolitics, those things may play out over multiple years. But they will play out and they will have an effect. And we just don't know what they are. So I'm just, you know, in my mind, I'm kind of, kind of cautious about everything. Ellen, this is no surprise. Jamie Dimon, over the course of his career, has always been a more cautious bank CEO. It was maybe just almost a couple of years ago when he talked about that so-called economic hurricane that they were preparing for. This is a story that has largely not played out, but the inflation story seemed to turn a couple weeks ago just because of a pretty decently sized, outsized inflation print. It's maybe one of only two that's really set things higher. Does that, is that really a trend that policymakers need to take note of? Or to your point, is the real risk keeping rates too high for too long? Well, I don't. I think it's too early for policymakers to say this is a new trend, but it's not too early for them to say, you see, we're vindicated. We didn't want to declare victory yet. We said we needed more evidence. And the fact that inflation re-accelerated in January supports that That patience, uh, if you will. There, there. I feel strongly there is nothing being debated on the Fed right now seriously as to whether the next move needs to be up. So I think we can set that concern aside, but it's still about how long do they hold. Now, something that that Jamie said, I think, rings true in that whatever kind of landing you might be thinking about, right, it's about timing. So we've had a soft landing call since March of 2022, and I rolled that forward into 2023. Guess what? I've rolled that forward into 2024. We will have a hard landing at some point. I guarantee you that. We're all wondering, when does that come? And I just don't see anything, and, and this is probably the same way the Fed sees it, in the current data, coincident data on the economy, or the forward-looking data that says we should be on recession watch right 
now. But the point that, that Diamond makes is that there are these cumulative impacts that build over time. And we are in the camp that we haven't yet seen all of the tightening impacts from monetary policy flow through. And so it should keep you um, nervous, right? Economists were supposed to worry about what evils lurk around the corner. Uh, and so I'm not on recession watch right now, but I do understand the the tremendous unknowns that are building in terms of tighter lending conditions, past monetary policy tightening, quantitative tightening, geopolitical events. I mean, they're, they're, they're stacking here, but we're still wondering when does that soft landing turn into a hard landing? Okay, Ellen, Steve, just hold on one second here because we do have results from the largest five-year Treasury note auction ever in history. Rick Santelli is tracking the action from the floors in Chicago. Rick. Yes, Dom, 64 billion of those five-year notes just hit the street. The yield, 4.32%. The issue, the one issued market was hovering around 4.31%. So this auction had a higher yield, which means a lower price. The government's the seller. That takes off on the grade because it's one of the most important aspects of grading an auction is how it prices. There was only one component that was above the 10 auction average, and that was the direct bidders like insurance companies and mutual funds. Uh, 19.7%, that was the best since July of last year. But all the other metrics were below the 10 auction average. I gave the grade a C minus. That means we've already had 127 billion of supply today, record size two year, record size five year, and tomorrow we'll finish off 169 billion. Boy, these are big numbers with 42 billion in seven year notes. Dom, back All to you. All right, Rick Santelli with the latest there. Steve, uh, you've had a couple seconds now yourself to take a look at those results and the numbers here. We have seen a tick higher in yields, a drop in price that's continued throughout the course of the day. This is all amongst a lot of issuance by the Treasury to finance our government. What does it speak to the economic picture in America right now? Yeah, I'm a little more charitable than Rick is on this score. I think if the government's able to place a record $64 billion in the market and the market takes it down, I, I give it a slightly higher grade than that. Um, it's been quite astonishing. Um, there were a bunch of sort of folks out there calling for the apocalypse from the amount of debt that we had to issue. It has been a bad trade overall to bet to make that bet, Dom. And, and I don't know. Ellen may well be right. By the way, worth pointing out, Ellen is the head of NAVE and is uh, running the show right now with this great server that we're talking about. But uh, it, it, it's worth saying that there may be a time when we have trouble placing this, this paper. We are paying a bit more than our European colleagues across the Atlantic when it comes to that paper. And it may be that this stuff accumulates. But right now, the Treasury seems to be doing a decent job of placing that paper, and we're doing it without what seems to be, at the moment, major systemic risk. I get that Jamie is paid to worry, but wouldn't it be terrible, Dom, to be living through the soft landing as it's going on right now and not see it or feel it or at least be reasonably happy about it? I, I get that people need to worry, but... You know, if we're going to do uh, potential growth or higher this year, according to that survey, if unemployment's going to remain below 4%, if inflation's going to come down, I don't know. What do you call that? We may be here already, Dom. I don't know. Maybe some folks out there enjoy enjoying it, and some folks out there, we should just pay to worry about that kind of stuff, which is 
obviously what a lot of people think about Jamie Dimon. All right, so please, Ellen, Steve, stay there for a quick second here. Sales of newly built single-family homes also coming in, speaking of news, lighter than expected in the month of January. Let's bring in Diana Olick, who joins us with all the details on that latest data housing point. Diana. Well, Dom, sales rose just over 1.5% from December, but December sales were revised down significantly. The street was looking for 680,000. We got 661, so softer. Why? Well, these numbers are based on signed contracts. So that's folks out shopping in January when mortgage rates were in the high 6% range. They didn't move much. That's down off that recent peak of 8% in October, but still not enough to really juice sales. Builders are buying down the interest rates, and builders should be benefiting from the tight supply of existing homes for sale. The price of a newly, newly built home in January came in at $420,700. That's down 2.6% year over year, but again, Remember, the builders buying down mortgage rates, so you kind of have to factor that into the net of what they're really making on a new home. Supply still high, 8.3 months, but another number, which I always love to do this one, it's homes sold but not yet started. That number's coming down steadily, way off its highs of last summer and October, so the backlog for builders is shrinking, and the supply is now more of a factor of lower demand. So what we are now on the cusp of the all-important spring market, high-end builders like Toll say they're still seeing strong demand in January, but other builders I've spoken to say not so much, especially now with mortgage rates back over 7%. Dom? All right, Diana Olick, thank you very much for the update there on the housing market. Let's turn now back to Steve Leisman and Ellen Zentner for the reaction to not just the rates, but the housing data now as well. Ellen, I will turn to you for this. The last inflation print that we got with regard to the consumer level is driven a lot by shelter costs because they tend to be a bigger part of that story. That's important for this overall market narrative. And yet we've just heard from Diana there could be the initial signs that the housing and by extension the rental market is cooling off a bit. Is that something that we should put a little bit more stock into or is it too early to tell? No, I think, first of all, I don't think it's too early to tell at all. Um, there was a lot of attention paid to new tenant rent index that came in for the fourth quarter and showed a steep drop. It does take time for that to show up in terms of the actual CPI data that tracks things like rents and other shelter costs. But we know it's coming. Um, the Fed has mentioned this. Chair Powell has mentioned it. The minutes of the FOMC meeting have mentioned it. And in our models, it's about a three-quarter lag. So we think that you will start to see a faster pace of deceleration in shelter prices in the back half of this year. But that doesn't answer the question right now or alleviate the burden right now that affordability is still terrible. It was very, very, very terrible. And now it's only very, very terrible. Um, but I think what we've seen with the bounce in housing demand or housing activity on the back of, let's say, the temporary drop that we had in mortgage rates is that the demand is out there. We have an incredible demographic drive for housing in the U.S. We just need mortgage rates to come down further, but come down sustainably. And I think for now, we absorbed that first drop in mortgage rates when the market was overpricing what the Fed might deliver this year. And I talked to one home, uh, 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 one real estate agent in California some weeks ago, and she said, hey, in January, I saw about a three-week bounce from that in interest in uh, purchasing a home, and then it died out. So we just need mortgage rates to come down in a more sustainable way. Steve, uh, this is a weird kind of tightrope to walk, right? This idea that 
if you can bring down housing costs by keeping rates high, that helps the inflationary picture overall. Yet you still want people to go and transact in the market, and they do so by keeping interest rates low. There's the conundrum, right? Yeah, it's huge. And this has been a problem from the get-go of the Fed's tightening policy. Um, You know, it it strikes me, I don't know what Ellen thinks of this, that we need some kind of national conversation about the housing problem. Uh, We we need to uh, build a lot more houses than we've been building. Um, I I don't know that the answer is available on a national level. It seems like it's a bunch of local issues that are grossing up. But the bigger story needs to be, need to bring more units in. Now, the idea has been that these, um, the, the construction of multifamily, which has been pretty strong, should bring down that rent and should bring down that OER. But it just strikes me there are so many 20 and 30-somethings, Dom, out there that are anxious to, to start a household and, and buy a house that we may never really get the housing disinflation that the Fed was counting on to bring that uh, uh, CPI and core PCE number down from three to two. All right. Real estate is local, local, local for sure. Steve Leisman and Ellen Zentner, thank you both very much for the thoughts. We'll have you on soon again. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, our next guest says the good news about the economy, speaking of that story, might already be priced in. And that's one of the reasons why he's cautious on the market outlook. Joining me now with more on that is uh, plus, by the way, key takeaways from Warren Buffett's letter is Bill Stone, the chief investment officer of the Glenview Trust Company. He's also a longtime Berkshire Hathaway shareholder as well. So let's start, though, with the economic question that we just brought Steve and Ellen into. It's that there is still a very, very large amount of uncertainty. Is it enough to derail the market? Well, I mean, I think it's a great, you know, lead up to this conversation. So I completely agree with the part when we talked about that there's really no sign of recession right now. And I'm not calling for one. Um, what it more is saying, at least the way I think of it is, a lot of the market has priced in, you know, the soft landing and a good outcome. That may, in fact, be the outcome. Um, it's just, you know, as you know, stocks get priced on expectations. And I think right now expectations have climbed. Uh, and again, if it delivers, that'll be all fine. That co- combined with obviously we've seen lots of good news on demand for artificial intelligence. It's been good. Really, what I'm just saying is probably makes sense to tilt a little bit away from some of the more economically sensitive areas because they have run up so much um, and maybe try and avoid, I'll say, economic sensitivity a little bit if you can uh, when you are investing. And I think that's probably the, the tilt. I'm not betting against it. I'll just say, you know, just trying not to, to get run over if uh, the economy does soften up. Bill, it doesn't appear as though there is enough worry in the market about the economy to affect corporate credit. And the reason why I say that is you look at a numerous series of charts with regard to not just investment grade, highly rated corporate debt, but also junk slash high yield status debt that are all now trading at some of the lowest spreads over taxpayer backed treasuries that we've seen in a long time. It just basically means that people don't have any fear about buying corporate debt because they think it trades almost as close to treasuries as it has in years at this point. Is that something to be worried about? Well, I think it's just a sign of, like we said, there's a lot of good news out there. And I don't think it's necessarily mistaken in the sense that you've got, if we end up with the soft landing continuing as it is, 
Um, you'll have corporate profits will be just fine, if not continuing to be better. You've had some reduction in, in cost inputs um, and then companies being able to price actually pass along some pricing. So there's good reason, I think, why it's trading that tight. Um, it's just, again, the same thing, right? The same discussion as you have about all risk assets that you have to know what's priced into it. So, um, again, I'd probably be a little careful in terms of reaching too far for the, the lower credits. I think that's, that's another, you know, similar to what I said on the, on the equity side. All right. Well, one company that doesn't have a credit problem whatsoever is Berkshire Hathaway. It's got a record amount of cash, 167, I think, $0.6 billion or thereabouts, the highest level that they've had ever in terms of cash surplus there. It's driven in part by better results on its investing, better insurance operations, you know, rails may be a question there. What's your read on just how much of an indicator Berkshire Hathaway is for the overall market? Yeah, I don't know. I think for the overall market now, and I think Buffett made a good point in his letter, and he said similar things in the past, is, you know, it's probably not likely to outperform much in a, I'll say, a really good environment for the world. Um, But where Berkshire should shine is when they can take advantage of dislocations like, you know, obviously the global financial crisis is an extreme event. But even in recessions, those kind of things where they'll get an opportunity to buy some things that they wouldn't get to see in a normal kind of economy because they have what you mentioned, so much cash. No one worries about them closing on a deal. Nobody worries about them backing away, um, you know, not being able to get financing because they don't need financing, those kind of things. Um, so that's why I think it, it's a great all-weather stock or company in the long run. You don't have to worry about the, uh, the what I always say, the risk of ruin because it's just running in a really conservative position. Now, things continue to really cook along, probably can't necessarily keep up, though you've got underlying businesses that are very geared to the economy, so they'll do okay. All right. It's also interesting as well that you almost at that position want a downturn in essence, to be able to take advantage of some of those opportunities if they come. One last question to you before we have to go and leave this conversation, Bill. Are there any places and stocks in the market right now that do still represent a value in your mind, an attractive pick at current valuations? Yeah, I think looking through healthcare looks interesting because it underperformed last year. And again, I'm kind of going on the theme of avoiding some economic sensitivity. So, you know, I really like Medtronic here. They've run and they've had a couple bumps in the road, most recent being that GLP ones would make everybody thin and you wouldn't have to worry about having medical devices. Um, I think they've made some good strides in their products, including in diabetes, um, and are not really getting credit for it. They had a good earnings report. Uh, so I think just recently, and I think it's a good start there, a uh, nice dividend on that one. So I think it's a good place uh, to be. All right. Bill Stone with the Glenview Trust Company. Thank you very much for the thoughts, sir. We'll see you soon. Thank you. All right. Well, on deck, our next guest says there's more to tech than just artificial intelligence right now and has three thematic trades, including some undervalued disruptors. Plus, Bank of America telling investors that Brent crude will be range bound for the next five years. So how should you position? The analyst behind that call will join us to make his case. The exchange is back after this break. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. 
with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Amazon's joining the Dow Jones Industrial Average effective today, replacing Walgreens Boots Alliance. Our next guest increased his position on the news and sees the stock going to 225 bucks a share. That's an almost 30% upside from current levels. He's been bullish for some time and made the bold call back on CNBC on March, May 23rd, back in 2022, when he said the stock will double within five years. Amazon is up roughly 60% since that call. Joining me now is the guy who made it, James Chuckmuck, partner and portfolio manager at Clockwise Capital. James, we've, we've talked all kinds of tech during our span together and your time on CNBC. Take us through the Amazon mm-hmm. story in your mind and why there is still more upside left after a big run. Yeah, I think the Amazon story is super simple. It's that e-commerce, uh, uh, retail will continue to proliferate toward e-commerce from analog to digital. I think that and over 50% of those dollars are captured by Amazon. That's the top line story. I think what's underappreciated and continues to be significantly underappreciated is the earnings power of this company. When you look at the optimizations that they've done on the fulfillment side, the opportunities on <clears throat> the incremental margins afforded from advertising, all of these will flow down to the bottom line. And we just think that the, the current street estimates aren't forecasting that. So I think it's a pretty simple thesis that, you know, at trading at, around 35 times earnings, and with earnings growing north of 50%, it's a pretty, uh, uh, pretty constructive bet to make. James, it's been a long time since many of us have been watching, covering either from a business or news standpoint, Amazon. We used to talk quite a bit about the e-commerce aspect of it, but nobody really talks about e-commerce anymore because the real right. sexy part about this whole story is Amazon Web Services, right? It's all cloud computing. Right. Is, this, is this the only division now people care about at Amazon and, and the growth numbers there? Well, I mean, it's a good point. Um, it, it trades that way, right? Um, on, the e, on the AWS side, um, I think that the story will continue to be the same, that growth rates have bottomed out. We went through the massive optimization cycles that companies were doing uh, over the last two years to try to right-size uh, their cloud uh, spend. And we think those days are behind us. You look at any of the comments from Satya Nadella, uh, to any of the other cloud bosses that um, cloud-based company bosses that um, those days are behind us, which means that those rates have bottomed out, and now we should be able to get those high incremental margins as new dollars flow uh, into the cloud. And th- that we're at we were at twelve percent, thirteen percent last quarter, and we think it'll just continue to incrementally grind higher from here. So um, the world is going in one direction. Like I said, on the retail side, same thing on the cloud side, from analog to digital. Um, services. How aggressively will Amazon have to invest 
plow back earnings, so to speak, into the company to support that AWS growing infrastructure and by extension future profits? I mean, obviously, it's going to require investments. It's obviously, when you look at the, the artificial intelligence uh, investments that are made uh, to improve the cloud-based services, you know, that those dollars won't stop and those dollars will continue to grow. That being said, it will provide a, a, a um, positive incremental margin relative to what the current margins are uh, as new dollars come on, despite the, um, the elevated spend that likely will need to remain for uh, the foreseeable period. And I think when you put it all together, the higher incremental margins on the AWS side, the improvements and optimizations on the retail side, um, I think that the street's just too low. All right. So, James, because you opened the door by talking about cloud computing vis-a-vis artificial intelligence, that AI run's been massive. A lot of tech stocks have benefited. Are there ones out there besides NVIDIA that you think represent better Mm -hmm. opportunities with regard to taking a view, a position on AI? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, with AI, every CEO throws out AI in order to boost their stock price. You know, every company has become an AI company. And I, I think that's not the right way to think about how AI will develop. Really, you know, we've separated AI into kind of two buckets. One is building out the physical infrastructure of artificial intelligence. That's building out the data centers to be able to actually support and uh, make these capabilities possible. And then the second um, part, which will come later and uh, in a much more meaningful way, is the utilization, the software side, and the proliferation of those services. So right now for 2024, we're heavily leaning toward the infrastructure side. You, you have the NVIDIA's, you know, SMCI, you know, that's a company that was growing from double digit growth rates to triple digit growth rates in the span of a month. Uh, you have um, companies like uh, 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 Comfort Systems, which does the cooling systems uh, for these data centers. You know, so we're looking at the physical infrastructure right now and we're t- dipping our toes on the software side, like the snowflakes of the world. But we think that that's going to be much more of a 2025 story. So I do think that you have to bifurcate because getting the timing of these is absolutely critical. Um, and, and you could have choppy waters on the software side while you have continued resilience and strength on the infrastructure side. All right. That's the AI trade. A, di- a deeper dive into that. James Chuckmuck, thank you very much. We'll see you soon, sir. Thank you. All right. So coming up on the show, the Supreme Court is taking up two cases that could decide how social media platforms regulate their content going forward. We'll bring you those details coming up next. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
Good afternoon and welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. A report commissioned by Congress following the two 737 MAX crashes back in 2018 and 2019 that killed more than 300 people was released today. An expert panel from the FAA found there was a, quote, disconnect between Boeing's senior management and employees regarding its safety culture. A final safety audit on the Alaska Airlines plane that recently lost a door plug mid-flight is expected in the next few weeks. Meantime, a federal judge has ordered ex-FBI informant Alexander Smirnov, who was charged with giving false intel to the FBI about the Bidens during the 2020 presidential campaign, is to stay in jail while he awaits trial. Smirnov was ordered to be rearrested last week after prosecutors said he was a flight risk. And Japan's slim moon lander survived a lunar night and re-established connection with Earth, Japan's space agency said today. The agency had previously said the lander wasn't designed to survive all that time in the dark. But evidently it did. Good for it. Back to you, Dom. One small step, one giant leap. Thank you very much, Tyler Matheson. Coming up on the show, WTI and Brent crude prices are roughly where they were a year ago, believe it or not. And Bank of America doesn't expect much to change over the next five years. The analyst behind that big call joins us to make his case coming up next. And during February, we're celebrating black heritage. Here is M&T Bank CEO Renee Jones sharing his story. As a black CEO of a Fortune 500 company, I may be an exception. But it's important to remember that there are many exceptional people who create positive change and inspire others every day. Black Heritage Month gives us that opportunity to celebrate the many exceptional absolutely extraordinary people in our black and brown communities across America. Welcome back to The Exchange. Oil is facing multiple headwinds over the past year, including rate hike fears, warmer winter weather, shale supply growth, and increased geopolitical risks. But even with all that, West Texas intermediate crude is up only a little more than a percent while Brent has actually fallen nearly a percent. And our next guest expects that sideways trading in oil to continue into the year 2029, saying prices will stay between 60 and 80 bucks a barrel for Brent crude futures. Let's bring in Francisco Blanche, the head of global commodities and derivatives research over at B of A Securities. Francisco, uh, analysts will get a lot of attention for making bold calls. I think as a consumer of gasoline and fuel that I'm happy to hear that it'll stay stuck between 60 to 80, but not everyone feels the same way. Why the call and why now? Uh, well, look, Dom, um, every, every year on this time, uh, we uh, do a medium-term oil outlook review. Uh, we look at what, how supply um, is going to behave for the next five years into, uh, into, and, and we do the same for demand and come up with a balance. And uh, we are looking at essentially a slowing global demand picture for oil because of electric vehicle sales, uh, mile hybrids, and just more efficiency generally. But also we're looking at reasonable supply trends in a world where we have about 5 million barrels a day of spare capacity. Um, Now, if you look at the last five years, uh, the average price of Brent has been $72 a barrel. Uh, And the average five-year price of Brent, right, um, which is really what this call is also about, has been $62 a barrel. So um, our call is is not crazy by any means, but I think think the the bottom line is that we are coming into the next uh, five years with more spare capacity. 
at, at an OPEC level than we've had in a long time. Historically, the last 20 years, we had a spare capacity around 3 million barrels a day. So we got way more spare capacity. Now, the one thing we don't have is, of course, government inventories. Um, we deplete the DSPR. So that provides a bit of a cushion if, if we have a recession. Uh, but remember, this is a very long-range long forecast that takes into account balances and, and doesn't necessarily forecast uh, recession or cyclical upturns and downturns, right? All right. So if I have this right, it means that oil-producing countries, and decades ago it used to just mean OPEC. It's more recently come to mean OPEC and its partner countries, and now even by extension the United States because we're the biggest oil producer in the world out there. Yep. That does mean those oil-producing countries don't have a lot of power or influence anymore with regard to the bigger, longer-term range, right, of what's happening given that forecast? Well, I mean, the reality is we still see uh, growth in the U.S. And, and part of the reason why uh, we are maybe a little more optimistic than we've been, remember, as I said, we, we've averaged $72 a barrel uh, in Brent for the last five years. Um, part of it is really U.S. shale supply is slowing down finally. But there is growth in Guyana. There is growth in Brazil. There is growth in Canada. Um, and demand itself is, is not going to be as strong as it may have been uh, on a previous trend basis, given the decarbonization efforts that we're trying to go through. So I think those are the factors that ultimately uh, prevent oil prices from spiking. But I do think that OPEC Plus still has a fair amount of market power. They have prevented oil prices from going lower, despite very steep interest rate hikes. Remember, we started a couple of years ago with rates at zero. And now rates are 525, 550, and, and in Europe, they've gone up to 4%. So OPEC has done a lot of work to balance the market in the context of, of very, very uh, fast uh, interest rate increases. So I, I, do think, um, I do think they've actually had a fair amount of power to the downside, protecting the downside. But then when it comes to higher prices, uh, they hold the spare capacity. They could force somewhat higher prices, but they could risk also reigniting or investment into shale. So I think they're going to have to balance that out. Uh, as you pointed out, the U.S. is the world's biggest producer of oil uh, and, and gas today, both. Uh, Francisco, before we let you go, in the past, we've talked about the structure of the futures market for crude oil. This idea that at times in the past, including even now, future oil prices are cheaper than they are at current spot levels. Is there still a so-called carry trade that oil traders can expect over the next several years because of, of, the, of that dynamic? Well, I think, I think it's very clear that uh, Saudi Arabia and OPEC Plus uh, collectively want to keep inventories low uh, because a backwardation term structure discourages investment, makes hedging more difficult. If you're a producer, you have to hedge the discount to spot, uh, which means you're, by definition, going to invest somewhat less than you would otherwise. Um, so OPEC is keen to do that. They've actually drained down inventories to create that forward curve, that backwardation that spot price above uh, future prices. And yes, there is a carry. And in fact, if you look at uh, commodity investments, uh, even though prices haven't really moved, they've actually done pretty well. Because not only if you own, let's say, a fully collateralized basket of oil futures, not only you are collecting a carry, the carry you describe, you're buying at the, at the discount to a spot sure. and you're letting it uh, roll up, but you're also getting paid five and a quarter, five and a half percent on your collateral. Um, it's an unfunded position. So, so that adds up to about 10, 12% a year if oil prices don't move. And I think you'll see more people coming in. All right. Francisco Blanche, it's always a great conversation. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon. Thank you. All right. Well, coming up with the show, some are calling them 
the most important tests of the First Amendment in the Internet era. We'll dive into the two Supreme Court cases that could change social media as we know it coming up after this. Welcome back. The Supreme Court's hearing arguments in two cases that could reshape social media and the controls that companies like Facebook have over content. Eamon Javers has those details now. Hi, Eamon. Hey there, Dom. The cases involve laws in Florida and Texas that seek to require social media platforms to provide equal access to all political points of view and prevent those companies from excluding some political commentary on freedom of speech grounds. The states argue that users of social media sites have freedom of speech rights to express themselves. But the companies led by their trade associations argue that it is the companies themselves that have the freedom of speech right to decide what to include or not to include on their own services. And throughout the oral arguments that we heard this morning, all sides sought to find the right analogy from the past to fit their argument about the technology of the future. One analogy is that this is much like a shopping mall where courts have held that private owners do have a responsibility to allow political activity by customers because the malls are something like town squares. Another was Boston St. Patrick's Day Parade where courts have held the other way that private organizers could not be forced to allow a gay rights group to participate because the organizers had the freedom to decide what to include or not include in their event. Justice Elena Kagan even raised the question today of what all this means for Etsy, which is the vintage craft e-commerce site. No decisions coming today. These are just oral arguments so far. But we do get a sense now of how the justices are thinking about these issues as they question the attorneys for both sides. Back over to you, Dom. Uh, Eamon, what exactly could the business implications for social media companies be if these cases are upheld? Yeah, look, I mean, if Texas and Florida laws are upheld here, it could be a real game changer for social media, right? I mean, the, those laws have been uh, postponed. They're on hold for right now. Uh, but if, you know, for example, uh, Facebook was forced to require uh, pol politicking of any kind on their site and not uh, in interfere in any way, it might be the case that they decide to dial back a lot on political content at all because they can't, con you know, get in there and, and mechanically make sure that there's some kind of balance. And if they're afraid that there could be some kind of legal exposure for them, maybe they have to dial back in a big way. That That's all to be determined, Dom. Uh, what we'll have to wait and see is what the Supreme Court does here, and we won't know that for a couple of months. All right. Eamon Javers with the cross-section of First Amendment and big business. Thank you very much. Coming up on the show, the three C's, conferencing, construction, and cloud. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on Lowe's, Zoom, and Workday coming up ahead on earnings next. Welcome back. Earnings season rolls on and we've got to work. We got work to do here, to be honest. We're talking housework, remote work, work management. In today's earnings exchange, we got Lowe's, Zoom Video and Workday. And here with our trades, Bor Schlossberg, BK Asset Management's Managing Director of FX Strategy. We'll start off with Lowe's up slightly to start 2024 as the outlook for rates and housing remains uncertain. Bank of America expecting weakness in do-it-yourself projects, but writing that could be offset by Lowe's gaining share from Home Depot in the pro or contractor builder segment. Boris, you see this as a bigger picture macro play. 
Yeah, you know, it's surprising because I got to tell you, there's a massive divergence between the price action, which has been outstanding, and the fundamentals and guidance for management, which has been anything but. I mean, we all can see that the DYI trend is pretty much down, material costs are up, so their business is down by about 11%. They've been guiding it lower, but the stock continues to perform really, really well. And as you said, with the rates unlikely to be lowered, that does not create any kind of a tailwind for housing. So hard to see how this is going to be a further rally unless you simply make an all out bet on macro that you know economy just continues to boom three and a half percent then yes it could still sustain itself but i think at this point i'd be a lot more cautious than than bullish on the stock a lot of housing macro to digest there next up you got workday boris the enterprise software company is up 78 percent in the past year according to morgan stanley many companies are showing increased interest in staff and resource management and that workday's new financial and analytics software combined with international growth should make for a strong report. So, Boris, how would you trade Workday? Well, not a cheap stock, but has just been an unbelievable executioner of software as a service, you know, within the HR space, and has seen basically its margins go from 10% into 18 to about 24% now. And many analysts believe it can go to 30% margins. So this looks like an all-out growth play. You got to love the stock, but it is very rich. So if you're an investor, you may want to either buy a leap as a substitute, or maybe sell 250, 270 puts just to see, you know, uh, take a little bit of risk off the table. But otherwise, long-term. It looks very strong. Execution has been excellent, and there's nothing but uh, positive prospects for it going forward. All right. And Boris, finally, it's Zoom video, the pandemic darling, down 10% to start the year and nearly 90% off its 2020 pandemic highs. Piper Sandler neutral on the stock as they look for download and churn data, as well as demand for the company's more business-focused services. What's the trade? Would you touch Zoom video? Yeah, that's, you know, what the trade is, in my opinion. The stock has certainly been left for dead, but I do think there's some life in it, specifically because it's actually making a stand in the enterprise space, especially in the call center space and in telehealth. And it has still excellent, excellent brand recognition amongst consumers. I mean, Microsoft is throwing everything but the kitchen sink at it, and it's still maintaining its market share. So I think if you see it continue to improve and gain on the ground in the enterprise space, it has a chance to really shine going forward. At this point, it's so cheap, $6.5 billion of cash on the balance sheet. Um, it looks like a really interesting bargain. I would definitely get along. All right. Boris Schlossberg with BK Asset Management on the earnings exchange. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon. Thank you. All right. That does it for the exchange. Coming up on Power Lunch, shares of Domino's are higher today on strong earnings and a nearly 25% dividend hike. The CEO will join Tyler and Courtney to discuss those results coming up next. Power Lunch is back after this quick break with the Dow off 55 points as we head into this commercial break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 